Good morning. Um, my name's Will, and it's, it's really great to be here with you guys this morning. Um, I'm part of the pastoral staff at Crossroads, and many of you might be thinking, I don't know he could do anything but play guitar. So, um, and that's actually kind of true. So this is just, uh, you know, I was nervous this morning about preaching, but now I'm more nervous about this little microphone staying on my ear. So the first has just kind of passed away, and I'm just going to focus on this thing. Um, so part of being on pastoral staff here at Crossroads means that I get to lead worship uh, week in and week out. So when you guys don't see me here on this campus, it's because I'm on the other campus uh, leading worship. But part of my job here at Crossroads, I also get the opportunity to uh, lead the college ministry where every other week we get to get together at the Bridge Street House of Prayer and uh, have worship and teaching. And on these Wednesday nights, I get the opportunity to preach the gospel from anywhere to 50 to 70 students with the hope that some of them will come alive to Jesus and really begin to hunger and thirst for his word. And um, you all know that Neil is leaving here. Um, I think that he's actually leaving on January 17th, so it's coming up uh, soon. One of his last requests before he goes back to England was to hear me preach on a Sunday morning. And so maybe we can put his email address on the screen. I don't know. You can forward all comments and concerns to him later on. Obviously, I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, I really uh, desire to preach the gospel of Jesus. I have a real desire to make his word known to people because I've been changed by it. I can stand before you today and say, I've been changed by the word of God. And uh, Really, I just want nothing more for than my life, my words, my breath to look like the life and words and breath of Jesus. Because there's life in them. If that means for me uh, preaching on a Sunday morning, if that means for me leading worship on a Sunday morning, it doesn't, it doesn't really change. It doesn't really make any difference because what I want to see is life change. What I want to see is the gospel of Jesus Christ going into the darkest places and lifting people out of those dark places. Because again, that's what happened in my life. And so, here I am, and I figure uh, this is a good place for me to do this. A good place for me to preach my first sermon on a Sunday morning. Um, Today, if I get an opportunity surrounded by people that I love and people that I can look at in the eyes and say, I love them too, then uh, it'd be dumb for me to not be excited about this. And so even though my stomach has literally turned and like knotted up every time I've thought about this moment for the last uh, two and a half months, I am just so, yeah, right. So (laughs) I'm just extremely like privileged to be here this morning. Um, This morning we're going to continue on in the story of Exodus that we've been in for the past few weeks. And Before we jump right into our text, I think it'd be wise to look back at where we've been. We've been about seven weeks now in the book of Exodus, and so let's just take a look at what we've covered so far. Most of you guys are going to know that the book of Genesis opens with uh, God's people enslaved under Pharaoh, right? Um, It's a king who knew nothing of Joseph or his family. The first few verses of the book tell us that, and if we're going to use the kingdom of God language that we love so much here at Crossroads, we're going to see that God's people are not in God's place. And even right in the text, uh, it tells us that in chapter 8, verse 26, it gives us a little hint. It says that the sacrifices that the Israelites would offer to God are actually detestable in the sight of the Egyptians. 
So the worship that they uh, would offer to their God can't even be done around Egyptians. It gives us a little clue at um, God's people not being in God's place. The people who are under this harsh slavery remember this God, this God of their ancestors. They remember the promises that he has made to them, promises uh, to cause them to increase, promises to cause them to multiply, to bring them up out of Egypt into a land, a new land, a new home, a promised land. And this God, whom they call out to, he does a really gracious thing in the first few chapters of Exodus. He, he responds. He hears his people. And he comes down. He calls this man named Moses, who grew up right under Pharaoh, who grew up right in his own house. He's thrust from that, those courts, and he's placed in the desert to learn how to be what? A shepherd. You ever think about that? He's, learn, he's learning what it means to take care of a flock. And in the same way that Jesus is going to call fishermen to be his disciples and say, you now will fish for people. You'll be fishers of men. He's taking this man, Moses, and he's going to say, you now, Moses, who have learned how to shepherd a flock, will now shepherd a flock. You will be the leader of my people. And Moses, he's going to be the one, though he stammers and stutters, he's going to be the one to come and confront Pharaoh. He's going to be the one to... uh, really bring God's plan to bear in the land of Egypt. You remember how God made his name known to Pharaoh by the mighty signs and wonders that he performed against Egypt to the point where Pharaoh, as strong as he was, couldn't hold on to God's possession any longer. In Exodus uh, 12, 31, he says to Moses, Up, leave my people, go, go and worship the Lord. And then, with a stunning display of power and authority. Maybe that hasn't even been seen since, except for maybe the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We see God cut a dry path through the Red Sea. We see God's people walk through on dry ground while burying the enemy in the water below. Last week, Rod walked us through uh, a Passover meal which is given to us, given to you and I, so that we might remember how God made a way for us too when there was no way. It's our story. And we got to hear it from each other last week. We heard testimony of how God's finger has made a way into our own lives and how he's moved mightily to do what seemed impossible. And this morning, we're going to look at one thing. And it's fitting. It goes right in line of what we're already looking at. Today we're going to look at what it means for man to respond to the awesome work that God works in their lives. We're going to see how Moses and the rest of God's people responded in light of their deliverance in order that we too might learn a little bit about what it looks like to respond to God for the work that he is doing in our lives. You ready? Open your Bibles to Exodus 15. If you don't have a Bible, maybe uh, someone can pass a couple out. Um, You can stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start at Exodus 15, uh, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, 
and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger, and it consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall, and the, the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Whom among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be still as a stone until you pass by, until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on a mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you've made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women following her with timbrels and dancing, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he's hurled into the sea. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Oh man, I just, I don't know about you guys, but I love our text today, and I love it uh, for a few reasons. The first reason is because I like music, and I like to sing, and I like that we get to look at a song this morning. But I like it also because of where it is in our text. The Exodus 15, um, we need to be asking a question, what is it doing here? And I know that seems weird to ask that question of the Bible, what is this text doing here? Obviously it's there because God wants it there. But but what is it doing in, in light of the whole story? And before we look at how man is to respond to God, we need to look at just a few, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring three things up that have to do with this text and where it's placed in the Bible. Something that you should notice about Exodus 15 is that it's in fact really the first song that is sung in straight worship of God. We find the word worship in the book of Genesis a few times. Um, Abraham worships God in Genesis 22 when he's called to sacrifice his son Isaac. He says, we will go and we're going to worship the Lord and we're going to return. And his worship, it looked like obedience. Abraham's servant uh, worships God by thanking him in prayer in chapter 24 when he goes out looking for a wife for Abraham's son Isaac, and, he, and, he's, and he's, he's granted favor in that. And Jacob, uh, he worshiped God too. The text in Genesis 47 says that he worshiped God as an old man leaning over his staff. So the idea of worship 
it definitely isn't a new idea at this point. But we can't really have a great understanding of what those instances of worship look like. The difference here in Exodus is that we get to peer inside and look at the content of Moses' worship. We get to look at his words and dissect them. We get to see what it could look like or what it should look like for us to sing a song to God. And I encourage you to do that this weekend, to go back. We're not going to cover everything that Exodus 15 has to offer. So go back and pick out words, pick out instances where you can see who's like you. I mean, Moses doesn't sum that whole thing up just by saying that he's working wonders or that he's awesome in power. The list goes on forever. Who is like you, Lord? The next thing that we can see uh, in our chapter is how it's the turning point for the entire story of the Exodus. Uh, Up until this moment, the entire story involves a slaved people serving a domineering king, right? But here's the switch. Here's the the turning point. For the rest of the story, we are going to be following a freed people, a people no longer slaves, who are learning as they walk through the wilderness what it means to walk with and to serve not a domineering king, but a loving God. Rod taught us a few weeks back about a word that can help us understand this switch, and that word is avodah. You might remember avodah means to serve or to worship. The first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus have to do with the Israelites avodah-ing Pharaoh. They're serving Pharaoh. The idea there is that they're worshiping Pharaoh. They even say to Moses, no, we're fine. We don't want to go. Leave us alone. But from this point on, they will avodah Yahweh. They will serve him. What's really cool is that uh, this is actually the way that Moses sings his song. If you look at uh, verses 1 through 12, they refer to the Israelites' hardship. But more than that, they refer to the deliverance there. They refer to God's power over their enemy. They point backwards. They peer backwards into the story. Verses 13 through 18, however, they point forward. They point to what God is going to do. You guys can see that difference, I think. The first half is saying, God, this is what you've done, and you're awesome because of what you've done. The second half is saying, God, this is what you're going to do, and you are awesome because of what you're going to do. Moses is taking God's faithfulness, and he's combining it with God's unchanging character to sing in a song. God, is, God was, and God will always be. Who God was is who God is, and who God is is who he's always going to be. What about you? Do you remember that? Do you remember the things that God has done? Not just things that are found in the book on your lap, but the things that are written in your heart. If it has to do with God's love, it's faithfulness. And you can take it to the bank. Has he spoken to you? Has he promised things to you? I'm not saying necessarily things that you can grab with your hand, but has he promised to be good to you? His promise is forever. God is who he says he is, and God will do what he says he will do. We can see that a little bit more from the the third thing that I want to draw out, and that's um, the song that, that Miriam sings. 
At face value, uh, when I started reading through it, it seemed kind of weird to me. Why is Miriam's song here? I mean, Moses already sang that exact same song. And so I'm starting to question, why is it there? In the past, I used to just skip over it, you know? You might be there with me, but, but that text there should really be saying, hey, this is important. Look at this. And so as I was thinking, I just thought maybe uh, Moses got all the baritones together, all the men, and lifted up their voices and they sang this song. And then Miriam was kind of like, yeah, we can do better, right? Gets all the ladies together. They got tambourines now. They're dancing and they sing. But it's really clear just the language that is used in verse 1 that it's, it's all of the Israelites that sing the song that Moses sang. They all sang it together. And so again, what, what's it doing here? Can anyone think of any other women in the Bible who lift up a song of praise to God? I know that Neil has talked about it in the last few months at least. But there's two women, two other women, Hannah and Mary. They lift up their songs of praise to God. I'm going to read just a little text from those songs. Listen to Hannah's song that's found in uh, the second chapter of 1 Samuel, starting at verse 7. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And he will guard the feet of his faithful people. But the wicked will be silenced in a place of darkness. Okay, sounds, sounds kind of familiar. Sounds like what we're talking about a little bit. Um... Mary's song is found in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 50. And she sings, His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. So it's clear to see a theme jumping off of these gals' songs, right? God will lift up the humble. And what's he going to do to the, wicked, the proud? The wicked, he's going to crush them. Moses sings the same thing in verse 7. He says, In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. See, the songs of Miriam and Hannah and Mary, they declare God's physical work, what he's doing in the world. But also, they declare God's heart. You see that? They're saying that God's way is a humble way that he delights in the small things of this world, that he uses them to establish his kingdom so that everyone will know that no one else could have done this work, that it is the hand of God. Whether it's slaves from Egypt, a small boy born to a no one, a barren woman, or a baby found and worshipped by shepherds in a manger, God's plan will succeed. These songs all say that same thing. And really, it's the story of the mustard seed. Jesus says the same thing. God's plan starts small, and it grows into something that no man can contain. All three of these songs also happen at a time in God's story when the early stages of his kingdom are being realized. These women can see the fulfillment of God's promises coming over the horizon, and they can't help but sing and shout about it. And we can learn from that. We can join in the song of God's coming kingdom because we can see it coming over the horizon too. 
We know that Jesus at any moment could come and with his coming tear down the exalted and lift up the humble. Moses, Miriam, they're pointing to the unchanging rule of God. And really, we have a word for what they're doing. It's called praise. It's called worship. It's called adoration. So I want you to think about something. In the last few weeks or whatever, how many times have you heard Rod say, hey, we're in a gym here, right? He's pointed out basketball hoops, all that kind of stuff. Really, how many times since you've been coming to Crossroads have you heard Rod say, stop acting like you're in church? Maybe he gets down like this when he says it. (laughs) It's almost every week. And um, coming off of the awesome time that we had together last Sunday in a circle there, Um, And as I'm preparing for today, I think that for the first time, I kind of felt a little bit of what Rod was feeling like when he says that. And maybe um, some of you felt it too. Maybe when you heard stories, and when you saw the greatness of God being worked out in a person's life. Maybe it was your husband who shared. Maybe it was your mom or your sister who shared of God's deliverance. What was going on in your heart at that time? I know for me, as I heard uh, my father-in-law stand and share about God making a way for him, I wanted to worship. I wanted to sing and shout because I've seen God's goodness to him over the years. I've seen God's faithfulness and his love, his never giving up, never stopping love. And it caused me to want to sing. It drew something out of me. It reminds me not only of God's faithfulness to my father-in-law, but it reminds me that God can, that God will be faithful to me. That God can deliver me. And I tell you what, that is always the case when it comes to the deliverance of God. The story of God in a person's life evoke praise from others. That's what Revelation 12, 19 means when it talks about overcoming by the word of our testimony. Many of us in this room today are here because we heard the story of redemption taught by someone's mouth. They spoke of God's greatness and his love. They responded to him in worship and it was attractive to us. That's me. And I tell you what, God can still deliver. You would agree with that, right? God can still deliver. He can still part seas. And even something that's easier to agree with is that there are seas that still need parting, right? How many of you could raise a hand for a family member or a loved one or even yourself that really need God to deliver them, right? But my question is, how are they going to hear the story of God's redemption unless you and I are opening our mouths and telling that story? that very thing that we get to see today. In Exodus 13 through 15, God does something awesome and the people respond. And now the story of God will go on before these people for thousands and thousands of years. It'll reach our ears today. We still stand in awe of God's greatness because he parted the Red Sea. Their testimony, it's going to cause the enemies of God to melt in fear. In Joshua chapter 2, um, When the people finally take the land, Joshua is leading them across the Jordan. They're going to Jericho. It's the first city that they're going to take. And uh, spies are sent to that city, right? 
um, Rahab takes these spies in and she says to the spies, we've heard of your God. We've heard of your God. And the people of our town are melting with fear. This is 40 years later. But it's also the very thing that Moses sang about, right? He said, the people of Canaan will melt with fear. The testimony of God will cause the enemies of God to flee, but it causes others, maybe you, to put your trust in God. And as we keep moving on through the Exodus story, uh, we should expect to see that more and more, this, uh, this drawing out of trust and love for God. But if you're slightly familiar, even slightly familiar with the wandering in the desert, you'll know that God provides, he delivers, he protects over and over again to the point where 600,000 plus people are fed and watered and protected daily. But more often than not, you know the story, people fail to respond, right? And if I'm honest with you, the person that that sounds the most like is me. A lot has changed over the past few years of my life. Um, I have two little girls, a three-and-a-half-year-old and a two-year-old. They're about 16 months apart. And so it'd be easy for you to imagine me on my knees crying out to God, right? It's happened countless times. And my testimony will always be that I've seen God provide a way for me. It might not be the way that I wanted him to provide, but I can guarantee you that no one wanted to walk through the Red Sea at the same time, you know? It doesn't look like God, or it doesn't look like we want it to look like. But he, he comes through. He provides in every situation. But I'm ashamed to say that the majority of the time, I fail to turn back praise to God immediately after my burden or my stressor is lifted. For me, I don't know about you, but for me, my eyes Don't go to the hills where my help comes from. My eyes go to the next burden, to the next stressor. And one of the big things that we need to learn from Exodus 15 and apply today, right now, to our own lives is that God should get the glory that God deserves. And that's simple. I know that. That's simple. And no one's going to disagree with me that no, God shouldn't get the glory that God deserves. But in real life, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We need to know that when God hears the cries of his children and moves in to rescue them, the thing that should immediately follow is praise and adoration because we serve a great and mighty God. We serve a redeemer and a deliverer. And we can learn this from the song. Moses says, I'll sing to the Lord for he's highly exalted. Moses and all the Israelites look out on the water. They can see it closing in on their enemies. They can see them drowning. They know. They turn their attention to the one who's delivered them. They turn their eyes to God. You know why? It's because they're very aware that the hand of God has just done this miraculous thing. There was no other explanation for it. They see Pharaoh's, the scripture says, they see Pharaoh's best armies coming in. They see chariots coming in, which to us doesn't sound like that big of a deal, chariots coming, but Pharaoh was the only one that had chariots. Chariots for the rest of the world were 500 years in the future still. The Hebrew word that they use for chariots is the Hebrew word that they still use for tanks today. 
Okay? This is Optimus Prime running after you and I, okay? Right? They knew that they could not save themselves. They knew that it was God, and they turned to give him thanks and praise. One of the reasons that I think that we forget to do that same thing, that we forget to thank God for our deliverance, whether it be from uh, a trial, like my kid's not going to bed, or whether it be from uh, deliverance from hell, from the lifting of the burden of sin, is because we hold on to the credit We hold on to the credit, and in doing so, our eyes just move on to the next thing that we have to accomplish. We think that it's by our own strength or our own goodness a little bit that we're able to push through. And in doing so, we rob God of the glory that he deserves. We say that, yeah, you know, I was in this pit, but I was able to come out. Praise God. But we need to remember, John 15 says that we can do literally nothing apart from him. That everything that is done in life is done in result of God's hand working in us. God rescued the Israelites. He made a way when there was no way. And this is our story. This is my story, your story. God has delivered us. Colossians uh, 1.13 says that, For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing that we could have done to liberate ourselves. That text makes it very clear. Who did it? God did it. In the same way the Israelites couldn't have parted the sea, they couldn't have ran faster than those chariots. And if we start to realize this in great situations, in small situations, we will be the ones that have a song of deliverance to sing. When we realize that it's God who does the delivering, when it's God who does the lifting of our burdens, and we turn our praise to him, we're the ones with a song to sing. And it's not a figurative song. I know that... um, There's a lot of people that come to church and they don't like to sing. There's a lot of people that even when you're surrounded by hundreds of other people singing, you don't want to sing. You think that it's strange to come and sing out loud. But if we're looking at the Bible, it should be strange for you to sit here and listen to me talk for 40 minutes. All over scripture, people are singing the praise of God. The largest book in your Bible is a book full of songs. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the people. And it's in the New Testament too. Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. Don't stop there. Keep going. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms and hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't stop there. Keep going. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Please know that I'm not just up here trying to get you guys to sing along with me on a Sunday morning. That's not what I'm after. 
What I'm after is looking at the Bible and saying, what does it look like to be a child of God? And all throughout the Bible, God's children are the ones singing the praises of their Redeemer. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that even Jesus sang. And what's our, what's our fate in the end? Where's this thing heading? At the end of our lives, those of us who trust in Jesus, who have a story of deliverance, will spend eternity with him. We'll gather around his throne. We'll join in with the angels singing songs that never end. We're going to sing for eternity. You and I will sing the song of our own deliverance. It's the very thing that we're created to do. Unlike anything else in all of God's creation, unlike trees or plants or oceans or any other animal, humans have the unique ability to give praise to the one who made them, to take in their surroundings and say back to God, you're good. To recognize the redemption and give praise to the Redeemer. We were made to worship. We're created to experience God and tell of his goodness, his kindness, to tell of his love and his favor and his salvation. So what's the purpose of Exodus 15? I think it's there to to show us how to take the awesome theology that is God. To take his deep things, his deeds, his wonders, his marvelous works of salvation and to make them personal. To not just say that God saves by grace, but to say that God saves me by grace. Not just to say that God is good and he's going to work out good things, but that God is good to me. And that he's going to work out good things for me. That's what Moses does too. If you look at verse 2, he says, The Lord is my strength and my defense. That word defense is the same word for song. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I'll praise him, my father's God, and I'll exalt him. It's interesting to me that Moses goes from being a man who has no foundation in God's family. He doesn't know who he is or what he's doing there. And he goes from being that to the one who's leading the song. God is my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. He's my God. Moses takes these great things that God has done and he makes them personal. Moses and the people have a song to sing because of what God has done for them. They've known captivity and now they know redemption. What about us? Do you know? It'd just be ignorance on my part to think that everyone right now is ready to stand and worship God that in a room this size, there's going to be people who aren't ready for that. There's going to be people who don't know a God of deliverance, who don't know a God of redemption. So let's talk about that for a second. In this story, you and I were the Israelites. We're the slaves of Pharaoh. We're the ones in need of rescuing. We're the ones in need of blood over our doorposts. We're in need of the blood of a spotless lamb as our covering. Just like Rod showed us last week, we're in need of the bread from heaven broken for us. We're in need of a mighty act of God to bring us up out of our captivity, for God himself to come down and dwell among us for the sole purpose of buying us out of slavery and oppression and addiction and death. 
Romans 5, uh, starting at verse 6 says, You see, at just the right time. I love those words. I love the tension, the suspense that builds in those words. You see, at just the right time, as Pharaoh's armies are storming towards you. You see, at just the right time, as your heels are getting wet, as you back up into the water. At just the right time, as the world is collapsing around you. When you are still powerless. It says that Christ came and he died for the ungodly. It says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, while we were slaves and captives, Christ died for us. God has made a way for us to come up from the burden of our captor and into his holy dwelling place, the place that his hand is established. He has set us free. He's brought about the deliverance of mankind through the death of his firstborn son. And whatever it is that has you bound today, he can give freedom. And he delights in doing it, in fact. Jesus himself says, it's the reason that I came to you. To proclaim good news. To proclaim freedom from the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. And he can begin that work right in this moment. Open up your heart to him. You can say to God right now, God, I've, I've been oppressed for a long time. I've been a slave for a long time and I'm ready. I'm ready for freedom. I need your freedom. Ask him for a song of deliverance. Those of us who have been delivered, What's your song? What's your song? Do you have a song? Listen to this quick story of a song of redemption that we're all going to be familiar with. Um, There was a young boy whose mom always wanted him to be a minister, and uh, she died when this boy was six years old. And As his life went on, it began to spiral out of control. He grew older. He filled his life with sin and wickedness. He joined the Navy and tried to run away from even that and was caught. He was flogged. He was demoted. He often thought of murdering his captain or killing himself. He said, I was exceedingly wretched. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but I made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. Later in his life, he worked on a ship bringing uh, people from Africa to be sold into slavery in America. And uh, one night, he began to read a book that someone gave him, and it's called The Imitation of Christ. And he was perplexed at who this book was portraying this man Jesus to be. As fate would have it, that same night, uh, a storm came up against the boat. The boat was flooded. And this man, who had just learned about Jesus, found himself crying out to God, Lord, have mercy on us. He was amazed that God would give him, an undeserved sinner, such mercy. He sat down a few years later with pen and paper, and he wrote an Exodus 15 of his own. He says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. God, you and you alone have done this thing. And those words 
his song of deliverance still prick our hearts today? Do you see it? Do you see that God's deliverance brings song? It brings praise. This is the way that we are meant to respond to God for his own work in our lives. I want to end um, with a quote that really kind of knocked me back on my heels this week as I was studying. It's a quote from a man named Charles Spurgeon, who I know that a lot of you guys are familiar with. If you know him, you can kind of picture him saying this, I mean, like reading his sermons, but think about this. Spurgeon says that if Christ were not a perfect redeemer, if the word of God might after all be untrue, if he had not power to keep his people, and if he had not enough love with which to hold them even to the end, then might his people go on their way mourning and despairing. But while God is God, while God is Jehovah, just and true, while his promise stands fast as the eternal mountains, while the heart of Jesus is true to his spouse, while his covenant and his oath are unbroken and unchanged, it's not seemly for the upright to go about all their days mourning and in despair. He says, Ye children of God, refrain yourselves from weeping and make a joyful noise to the rock of your salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him with song. This morning, we're going to have a great opportunity to do that very thing. To be the children of God who have been redeemed. To acknowledge that it's only through the blood of Jesus that we have redemption and to lift our eyes up to him in adoration. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for um, coming down for going to the depths and for plucking me out of it. Because I was an enemy of yours, Jesus. I was living for myself. I was walking in my own path and you said no longer. And that is the story of a lot of people here today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us to take your deliverance and make it our own. To take your deliverance and turn back songs of praise to you for the sake of others hearing our song and coming to know you, Christ. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's not beat around the bush. Stand up to your feet, would you? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. See my soul.